Thank you for joining us online at Hauser Community Church. Directly after the message, we'll tell you how to contact us if you have any questions. Now let's join the speaker as he begins his sermon. Brother Dan Culver is going to bring the word to us this morning. Um, and so anticipate that the Father would be speaking, uh, not only through him, but directly to your heart. Dan, come. I want to thank uh, Pastor Greg and the rest of the elders for the privilege of being able to speak to you all this morning. It is a joy to be able to share the Word of God with the people of God. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, as we come to you this morning, Lord God, we have worshipped you in song. Lord, allow us to worship you now through listening to your Word. God, we pray that you'll give us ears to hear your voice. You give us minds to understand it, hearts to receive it, and wills to put it into practice. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. From the earliest chapters of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, or chapter 3, I believe it is, and throughout the rest of the Old Testament, God promised to send a Savior into the world. Now, some of those promises are a little bit obscure. They're kind of hard to see, kind of hard to understand. But even so, taken as a whole, it appears from the Gospels that the people knew when to expect Jesus. They knew where he was going to be born. They knew a few things about him and his lifestyle, what his character would be like, and what he would accomplish. The passage that we're looking at this morning in Isaiah is one of the clearest of those promises about Jesus. And it revolves around the very central event in his life. The birth of Jesus, of course, was essential. But apart from this event, it wouldn't do us any good. The resurrection of Jesus was critical. But if this hadn't happened, it wouldn't do us any good. So what Isaiah is revealing here in this passage is the very event by which you and I will all one day stand before God and be judged. Our passage this morning begins at the end of Isaiah chapter 52 and it goes through chapter 53. It's not a very long passage actually. It sounds like it is, but it isn't. In fact, Martin Luther said that every Christian, every Christian ought to memorize this passage at any cost. And so I've been working on memorizing this passage. Now, William Tyndale was another uh, person about the time of, uh, of uh, Luther who said that he believed that everyone should be able to understand the Word of God. He wanted the Bible to be able to speak to the common people. And so in order to memorize this passage, what I did is I took all the different translations and tried to put them together into something that I could really comprehend. And that's how I memorized it. So I'd ask you to listen to that this morning. And remember, this is what Isaiah told in his scriptures. In the scriptures, God told Isaiah 600 years, 600 years before it took place. This is from God. God said, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. Many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he hardly seemed human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. 
yet he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence, for they will see and understand that which they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before God like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry and barren ground. He was not majestic or handsome. There was nothing special about his appearance that would attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. We turned our backs on him, and we looked the other way. He was despised, and we didn't care. But it was our weaknesses he took up. It was our sorrows that he carried. We thought he was being punished for his own sin, but he was pierced for our rebellion. He was crushed for our sin. He was beaten so that we could be made whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Like sheep, we all strayed away. We turned from God to follow our own way. So the Lord laid all our sins on him. He was oppressed and harshly mistreated, but he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to be slaughtered. And like a sheep being sheared, he did not open his mouth in protest. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants or that his life was cut short in midstream. He was put to death for the rebellion of the chosen people. He did no wrong. He never deceived anyone. But he died as if he were a criminal and was buried like the rich. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him through suffering, making his life an offering for sin so that he would have many descendants. He will continue to live. God's plan will succeed. He will be satisfied when he sees that by his suffering, many would have their sins forgiven and be made right with God. I will give him the portion of a victor, and he will share with others, because he died like a sinner in order to intercede for and save sinners. And for the rest of the message, I will use your pew Bibles to please everyone else. That's the ESV translation. And as your notes indicate, we're going to be looking at Jesus from four perspectives this morning. You'll see him as a servant, a sufferer, a substitute, and a sovereign. A number of years ago, I read about a dad who could not read through the passage that we've just heard without crying. And I kind of thought, well, he's probably just a little over-emotional, a little sensitive. And I didn't give it a lot of thought. And over the years, once in a while, I would think about him as I heard this passage read or I read through it on my own, but I was never affected the way that he was. I didn't cry. But you know what? That only reveals how little I understood this passage. This last spring, I read an article by a 17th century author named James Durham. And he wrote that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are essentially commentaries on chapter 53 of Isaiah. And as I began to read through those Gospels, I saw he was absolutely right. They flesh it out. They explain it. 
Augustine, who lived some 400 years after Jesus, referred to Isaiah's passage as the fifth gospel. And so if you memorize this passage, you can say you've memorized a gospel. And as I said, some of those Old Testament prophecies about Jesus are not as clear as we might like them to be. But there is one thing about them that I found to always be clear. They really can't refer to anyone else. They're clear about that. And this prophecy is a case in point. Now, as we look at this passage about Jesus, we're going to see what Isaiah said would happen. We will see what did happen. And we're also going to see that not everything that he said has happened yet. The scripture this reading this morning from Acts was uh, clearly about Jesus. Shows us this passage is about Jesus. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, was the prophet talking about himself or somebody else? And then beginning with this same passage, Philip told him the good news about Jesus. Philip taught us that this passage is about Jesus. The eunuch believed this passage was about Jesus. He received Jesus, and he was baptized immediately. And my prayer for you and I here this morning is that you're going to find ourselves either in the position of a Philip, one of us who understands this passage is about Jesus, and we're able to explain that to others. Or if you're not a believer yet, if you're like that Ethiopian eunuch, you don't fully understand it yet, you'll listen, you'll ask questions, listen, believe, and you'll respond as he did. So let's see what this passage teaches us about Jesus then. The first way we see Jesus described here is in as a servant. As a servant. Look at chapter 52 and verse 13 of Isaiah. <coughs> Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now Isaiah is not talking about one of his own servants. He's not referring to Jesus as his personal servant. Sometimes in the Old Testament we find God speaking of Israel as his servant. Sometimes he refers to individuals. He says, Abraham my servant, Moses my servant. But here in this passage, my servant can only refer to the one who the prophecy is about, and it is about Jesus, the servant of God, the arm of the Lord. And the text says that God's servant will act wisely. What does that mean? The King James Version says he'll act prudently. He's going to accomplish what he's been sent to accomplish. He's going to succeed. He will accomplish the purpose for which he has been sent. In John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus said, I have come to do the will of the Father. In John chapter 4, when the disciples urged Jesus to eat, he told them, my nourishment comes from doing what the Father wants me to do. Jesus thrived on doing the will of God. That's what kept him going, not food, doing his Father's will. He delighted in doing whatever God wanted him to do. In John chapter 12 and verse 49, Jesus said, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. So Jesus acted wisely. How? By doing the will of God completely. From God's perspective, then, Jesus is his servant. Now, the first part of verse 2 in chapter 50, 53, we see just a little more of how God regarded his servant Jesus. 
For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. What's that mean? Well, before God, Jesus appeared as a lovely green plant sprouting up in a desert. That's how he looked to God. He was delightful to behold. Jesus was born in desperate times for Israel. Israel was in a spiritual drought. God allowed the Romans to take over Israel at that time because they failed to live as they should have been living. So in God's eyes, Israel was a barren land, spiritually barren. It was dry. But then comes Jesus, this tender green shoot, who at 12 years of age spends days with the teachers of the law at the temple in deep discussion about what? The things of God. That's how the servant of the arm, the arm of the Lord, looked to God the Father. He was growing in wisdom and in stature with favor and favor with God and with men. In God's eyes, Jesus was beautiful to behold. God honored Jesus. For your notes, God honored Jesus. Now look at the last part of that same verse, verse 2 in chapter 3, and, or chapter 53 there, and also verse 3, and we'll see how people felt about God's servant. How did mankind feel about God's servant? It says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's how mankind appeared, regarded Jesus. Jesus was not a man who would normally attract a lot of attention. Some people have that special charisma and people just want to gather around them. We know some movie stars are like that. We see some politicians are like that. I'm not sure why. Some are. We even see some preachers are like that. But Jesus wasn't like that. He had to be pointed out before people knew who he was. John the Baptist had to say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Andrew had to go and tell Peter. Philip had to go and tell Nathaniel, Come and see. People did not follow Jesus for his looks. They did not follow Jesus for his personal charm. He had to be a great teacher. He had to perform miracles to get people to pay attention to him. The book of John, John's Gospel, verse chapter 1 and verse 11 says that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells us in parable form the response of the people to the servant of God. He says, we will not have this man rule over us. That's how the people felt about Jesus. He was despised. He was rejected, just as Isaiah predicted. What Isaiah said would happen here, happened. 1 Peter 2.4 says, he was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. So as a servant, God honored Jesus, but people rejected Jesus. Secondly, we see Jesus in this passage is described as the sufferer, the sufferer. Now, I believe that if you were to ask most people, they know that Jesus was crucified. They know that that was a terrible way to die, that it was painful. 
But I think that sometimes even you and I as believers, as well as our unbelieving friends, what we fail to consider is that Jesus did not just die for our sins. He suffered for our sins. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Hebrews 2.10 says, For it was fitting that he, God, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. So Jesus' sufferings led to, and we know that they culminated in his death, but if it was just dying for our sins, it was all that was needed, it could have been accomplished a lot more quickly and far less painfully. But as we read in Isaiah chapter 3, 53 and verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him through suffering. He has put him to grief. You see, it was God's will to crush Jesus. It's God's will for Jesus to suffer for sins. It's his will for him to experience grief for sin. Remember, Isaiah wrote this prophecy six centuries before Jesus came on the scene. Suffering, as most of us know, can be of two types. It can be emotional or mental, or it can be physical. And Jesus had to endure both. So let's look first at his emotional suffering. Your verses are listed, listed there, chapter 53. We'll read these, verse 3 and 4, 7, the first part of 8, the first part of 10, and the first part of 11. And these verses speak to us of the emotional suffering of Jesus. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. On down to verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And down to the first part of verse 10 and the first part of verse 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And then out of the anguish, anguish of his soul. Charles Spurgeon wrote that grief of the mind is harder to bear than pain of the body. A lot of you know more about emotional suffering than I do. Thankfully, I don't like it. But even if you do know a lot more than I do about it, you don't know as much about it as Jesus did. In Luke chapter 22, we find Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In verse 42, he says, Father, if you were willing, remove this cup of suffering about that he was about to endure. That cup was the cup of suffering. Take it away. He knew what was coming. Verse 44 adds that he, is being in, he was in agony and he prayed more earnestly. You see, Jesus knew everything that was coming to him. He knew the seriousness of it. He knew the intensity of it. And it caused him emotional pain to anticipate it. And then before he could think about it any further, it began. We see the very one of the disciples that they had made, they trusted him so much that they made him their treasurer 
Judas betrayed Jesus. In chapter 13 of the book of John, Jesus said that Judas' betrayal fulfilled the scripture that says, the one who eats my food is turned against me. Some of you have been betrayed. You know that betrayal can cause emotional pain. And then he was deserted by his own disciples. Matthew 26, 56 says, at that point, all the disciples deserted him and fled. The very same disciples who just moments earlier were prepared to die for Jesus, who would never deny Jesus, deserted Jesus. And so now we see Jesus alone. Betrayed, denied, deserted. Then we read in John chapter 18, verse 12, that he was arrested and he was bound. We just read Isaiah 53, 8. It says, by oppression and judgment, he's taken away. The King James Version says that he was taken from prison. You see, Jesus is now a prisoner. He's been betrayed, he's been deserted, now he's a prisoner. Bound, guarded, and imprisoned as he waits to be summoned by the high priest, as he waits to be summoned by Herod, as he waits to be summoned by Pilate. Betrayed, deserted, arrested, bound. That's a pretty heavy toll emotionally. But Jesus underwent more than that. Not only was he betrayed by a disciple, not only was he deserted by the rest of the disciples, in Mark 14, we see that he was denied by Peter three times, right after Peter said he would never deny Jesus. It was just as Isaiah said in verse 3, they hid their faces from him. Jesus was betrayed, deserted, denied. The Gospels also tell us how Jesus was despised as well as rejected. If you read through the accounts in the Gospels closely, you'll see that he was humiliated throughout the entire ordeal. He was spit on. He was ridiculed. He was cruelly mocked. And then he heard the crowds call out, crucify him. So Jesus was abandoned by men. But even that wasn't the full extent of his emotional suffering. The highest point had to be when he heard on the cross when he felt abandoned by God himself. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you imagine having all of that happen in a period of probably less than 12 hours? So Jesus felt abandoned not only by men, but also by God. He felt totally abandoned. But that was just his emotional suffering. Now let's take a look at his physical suffering. We'll look at chapter 52, verse 14, then we'll jump over to 53, 5, 8, and the middle part of verse 12. So 52, 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
And then verse 12, the middle part, he poured out his soul to death. So these verses reveal to us how Jesus suffered physically. Well, was it as bad as Isaiah made it sound like it might be? Let's see. We saw earlier in John chapter 18, when the soldiers arrested Jesus, they tied him up. They bound him. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal, and it really isn't compared to what was coming. But it was the beginning of his physical pain. If you've ever been tied up, if you've ever been handcuffed, you know it can hurt. If you haven't, trust me, it hurts. And I don't think that those guards asked Jesus, are these ropes, are these chains too tight? No, that was just the beginning of his suffering. Verse 5 of chapter 53 says what? It says he was pierced. He was pierced. The piercing of Jesus involves several stages. It began with his being chastised. That means he was whipped. The King James Version says, by his stripes, by his stripes we are healed. In Luke chapter 23, after Pilate had declared Jesus innocent twice, he sentenced Jesus to be flogged in order to satisfy the Jews. But the Jews still demanded that Jesus be crucified. And Pilate still had Jesus whipped. He was flogged. Now, when the Romans flogged people, they used a short whip, probably about that long, something like that. But unfortunately, it was embedded with pieces of metal and bone and lead and things like that. What that means is that they were being whipped. It would rip open the skin. You see, Jesus' body was being pierced by the scourging. And if that had been all that had happened to him, that would be enough to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy right there. But we read in Matthew chapter 27 that next the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. Now, from everything I've ever read or seen, these thorns are about that long, about an inch long, very sharp. And after they carefully wove that into a crown and placed it on his head, they mocked King Jesus. And they took a stick that they had given him as a pretend scepter, took it out of his hands and beat him on the head with that. Now what's going to happen to that crown of thorns? Some of them thorns are going to pierce his head. And all the while, while that was taking place, people were hitting him. They were slapping him. They were ridiculing him. They were mocking him. While those thorns were piercing his head, and the blood flowed down, mingling with the spit people were spitting on him, and undoubtedly the tears, because Jesus was human. And I'm not sure how any human could undergo that without crying. And then we see in Mark chapter 15, verse 24, they crucified him. Then they crucified him. He was pierced as they drove spikes into his hands and into his feet. They nailed him, nailed him to the cross. Now, if you're not wincing, you probably didn't understand me. Maybe you didn't hear. They impaled him on the cross. Impaled him. They drew spikes through his hands and through his feet. Yes, as Isaiah wrote, he was pierced. But even that wasn't the end of his piercing. John 19 33 says, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, 
They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. And actually, verse 37 of John tells us that was what fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. So here's the picture of Jesus you should have up to this point when you compare Isaiah's picture with what really happened. You should see Jesus mentally exhausted, emotionally drained. He's been betrayed, deserted, denied by his closest followers. He's been arrested, despised, spit on, mocked, and ridiculed. You should see Jesus' body beaten, bloody, his hair and his beard matted with blood and spit, his face beaten and undoubtedly bruised because people were punching him in the face. You should see blood running down from his head, his back laid open with deep, stinging cuts. A mass of raw flesh, so gory that it was exactly like Isaiah predicted in chapter 52, verse 14. His face was so disfigured, one would hardly know he was human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. Until you see that picture, you really can't understand what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus was mercilessly murdered. Mercilessly murdered. As Isaiah wrote in chapter 53, verse 4, people thought he was being punished by God for his own sin. But verse 10 tells us he went through this because it was God's will. It was God's plan for him. Jesus was God's servant. He's the very arm of God. But why would God will this? What kind of a plan is this? Next we see Jesus as the substitute. From eternity past, God has always had a plan to redeem a people for himself. God did not develop a plan after the sin entered into the world. He already had that plan in place. When he knew it, when he met our, made our first parents, they were perfect. We know that. But when they did what God told them not to do, they became sinners. Their children were no better because sinners can only produce sinners. If you're a parent, you know that. If you have a parent, you know that. You and I are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. It's in our nature. There's only two types of people in the world, saved sinners and lost sinners. Two types, saved sinners, lost sinners. And lost sinners need to get right with God. And that doesn't just happen. It requires a plan. Now, if I develop my own plan to get right with God, I could make it as easy as I wanted, and you can be sure that I would, or I could make it as difficult as I wanted. But it would still be my plan. That's the problem. The problem with any, the plan of any man or any woman or any group of people. Even if you get a bunch of people to agree with you. You just results in another man-made religion. Just results in another cult. Because it's a one-sided plan. It doesn't have the seal of God on it. But God's plan has the approval of the Godhead. The Father approved, the Son approved, the Holy Spirit approved. God's plan was always to send a perfect substitute. And Jesus was that sinless substitute. Look at chapter 53, verse 4, and then the last part of verse 9 through verse 11, which start to reveal to us God's plan. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Then 9b, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and she shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their burdens. This tells us that even though people thought he was being put to death for his own sin, that he must have done something wrong, Jesus was absolutely innocent. Absolutely innocent. The real reason we see he had to die is in verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him in order to make him an offering for sin. What this means is, as it says in the last part of verse 11, that by the servant's death, Jesus, many would have their sins forgiven. Many would inherit eternal life. That's God's plan. Remember in the Old Testament, before Jesus died, animals were sacrificed as a substitute for when people sinned. When people sinned, they didn't have to die, but an innocent animal had to die in their place. And those sacrifices, probably in the hundreds of thousands, maybe the millions, were a picture, a shadowy picture, of what was going on and what was going to happen in the future in order for sins to be forgiven. The death of an animal was a symbol of what had to take place so a person didn't have to die for their own sins. A substitute had to die instead. And these were temporary pictures to reveal the seriousness of sins, the seriousness of ignoring God, rebelling against God, not accepting God, and the cost of forgiveness, the death of an innocent. They were signs pointing to Jesus. The last part of verse 12 says that Jesus was numbered with the transgressors. He was considered as a sinner. He died like a sinner. Verse 9 says he made his grave with the wicked. He died as if he were a criminal. He wasn't a criminal, but he died as if he were one. That's what Isaiah predicted, and that's what happened. It also says he was buried with the rich. He was. Now, I said it's always been God's plan to redeem a people. To redeem means what? To save from destruction. And a people here is a race of people, a whole new race of people, a whole new civilization. According to the Bible, after we die, we are going to stand before God and be judged, and we'll either be saved, we'll be a member of that new race, or we will not be saved. And you know what happens then? If you made me right with God, and this passage tells us how that can happen, you'll be saved from hell. Hell is a place that, according to Jesus, is a place that is so bad, it would be better for you never to have been born in the first place than to go there. That's why Jesus endured all this, so that we don't have to go there, and so that we can go and be with him and be a member of that new race. Jesus was God's servant, the arm of the Lord, sinless, without blemish. There was no fault in him. He was the Lamb of God. He is God's substitute for us. This is God's plan to crush Jesus in order to save us. 
His death would produce descendants. His death would produce descendants. He is God's substitute. And he's also our perfect substitute as well. Because he died for our sins. Listen again to verses 4 through 6. Surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So until or unless we see ourselves in this passage, we're going to miss the meaning and the importance of Isaiah's message and the rest of the Gospels as well. We're all lost and we need to be saved. The passage is about Jesus and about each one of us individually. You might be asking, well, how does God's plan work then? One of my favorite personal evangelists explains it something like this. Let's say you find yourself in a court of law and you are found guilty as charged. The judge pronounces that you either pay a fine of $10,000 or you're going to jail for the next six months. And you have a choice, but you don't have any money. So along comes this good Samaritan who offers you $10,000 with no strings attached. He just doesn't want to see you go to jail. He thinks you're redeemable. Now if you receive that money, you can pay the fine and you're free to go. The fine's paid in full, the court is satisfied. You're freed from that debt and you walk. But if you reject that money... If you reject that offer, you're not free. Now, when I stand before God, my sins are going to be forgiven because by the grace of God, Jesus paid the debt that I owe. He paid my fine because I received his offer. My debt is paid in full and I'm free. Remember all those animals that were sacrificed to give us a picture of what was necessary in the Old Testament in order to be saved? John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Matthew 20.28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you want to know how you can have your sins forgiven? He can forgive your sins as well as mine, but there's a catch. You have to trust him. You have to let him pay your fine. I read recently something that struck me. There's not going to be one soul in hell, not one soul in hell who is able to say, I came to Jesus, but he rejected me. Jesus does not reject people. The vilest offender who truly believes. Some of you remember that old hymn. You simply have to believe like the Ethiopian eunuch. 
Like sheep, we all strayed away. We turned from God to follow our own way. Now we have to turn to God and follow his way. We follow him. We do what he says. We're saved by his sacrifice. We follow him because of his sacrifice. We're grateful. The picture in Isaiah is a graphic picture. What we see in the Gospels fleshes out the sufferings of Jesus before our very eyes. But I think sometimes it's too easy to have a sympathy for Jesus that can result in a sentimental belief. We appreciate what he did, but it doesn't change the way that we live. It doesn't change the way that we think. That's a sentimental faith. That's not a biblical faith. Biblical faith is life transforming. It forever changes the way that we think about Jesus as well as the way that we live for Jesus because of all that he did for us. Jesus is God's substitute. Has he become your substitute? Are you trusting in God's plan? Or maybe you have your own plan. In God's plan, anyone can become a child of God. Jesus is the servant. He's the sufferer. He is the substitute. But he is also the sovereign. Isaiah began by noting that God said his servant would act wisely. He would be high. He would be lifted up. He was going to succeed in his mission. And Isaiah reveals to us two ways that this is going to be revealed. First, it's being fulfilled right now, and it has been in the past by many children, the many children that Jesus' life is producing. If you're born here again this morning, you're one of his results of his death. His prophecy is being fulfilled because it says that he will have a posterity. His life will produce many descendants. Isaiah said in the first part of 52, chapter 52, and verse 15, he shall sprinkle many nations. Some of your translations read startled. They'll be startled too, but I think the real idea here is that they will sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? In Exodus, after Moses gave the people the laws of God, the people promised to obey those laws, and Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkled it on the people. That was the blood of the covenant that they promised to obey, and it was also symbolic of the sacrifice of Jesus. The blood that either saves a soul or without it, a soul is lost. And now that blood has been sprinkled not just for the nation of Israel, but for many nations, many nations. Verse 11 of chapter 53, we read, he would make many righteous. Not everyone, but get this, anyone. Anyone, but not everyone. Many will be saved. First part of verse 12 starts out with, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. In the Old Testament, when a warrior won a battle, he would share the spoils with the people. Jesus is the victor. And you and I who are his children, we share in the plunder of his victory. We share in the riches of Christ Jesus. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 10 says, Jesus will see his offspring. Hebrews 2.13 says, Jesus says, Here am I, 
and the children God has given me. As his offspring, you and I meet together each week. We exalt him in songs we did earlier today and as we're going to do in a moment. We exalt him by listening to his words. We're his royal people. He is our sovereign God. Listen to Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus is exalted by his chosen people. He is our sovereign king. A second way this prophecy was going to be fulfilled is we're going to see Jesus as a servant of God exalted universally. Not just over those of us who are saved, but everyone. Chapter 52 and verse 15 says, Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which they had not been told they will see, and that which they had not heard they will understand. The idea there is, I think in Romans chapter 120, where they're not going to have any excuse when they stand before God. Kings or anyone else. We know they're not going to be totally speechless because Romans 14, 11 says, On that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that precious name, the name above all names. On that day, the day for which all other days have been made, kings and everyone else is going to see the glory of God in the face of of Jesus. His face will not be disfigured on that day. He will not wear a crown of thorns on that day. He'll wear a crown of glory. And he won't be mocked or ridiculed on a cross, but he'll be worshipped on the throne. Jesus is going to be highly exalted one day by all people because he is a sovereign over all people. He will be exalted by all people. Jesus is the servant of God who suffered as our substitute so that when we meet him as sovereign, we can be welcomed into his kingdom. Isaiah has told us it would happen. We've seen what did happen, and we know, we know that the rest is going to happen. There's only one verse left in this passage that I haven't read. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1 says, Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Let's close in prayer. Father, we cannot begin to comprehend very much of your great plan for us the depth of your love for us, the extent of your love for us. But Lord, we do ask that you'll embed these truths into our hearts and into our minds. And Lord, cause them to cause us to have a deeper devotion and a deeper love for you. For we ask it in that blessed name, the name above all names, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Hauser Community Church Online. Check back next week for the next Unpacking of the Word of God. Please feel free to contact us with any questions you might have about the message or for pastor at area code 541-756-2591. 
or email us at pray at hauserchurch.org. Again, that's P-R-A-Y at H-A-U-S-E-R-C-H-U-R-C-H dot O-R-G. Our address is 69411 Wildwood Road, North Bend, Oregon, 97459. Remember, if you're seeking the truth, it will set you free. And that truth is Jesus Christ.